waiting for the fish to bite, waiting for the wind to fly a kite, or waiting around for Friday night. Everyone is waiting. Those are the words of Dr. Seuss. (laughs) And they tell uh, about a human dilemma. Uh, It's not usually a dilemma, but it can be. We wait. And sometimes we don't like waiting. Sometimes, especially in America, we want it now. We have instant rice and we have microwave ovens. And now we have these new fancy crock pots that uh, are like, uh, they're like the old uh, pressure cookers and I don't even understand them. Some of you are going to come and tell me all about it. I don't really care. (laughs) It's that instant thing. We want it now. We want it today. We want it right at this moment, right? But here's what the scriptures tell us. Be still before the Lord. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Psalm 37, 7. Man, that's hard to do. Because the times that we should be still are the ones we don't want to be still. We want to fix it. We want a solution. We want an answer. And God says, just be still. So this weekend, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what do you do when God seems like he's delayed, like he's silent, like he isn't around, and you feel like he should be doing something and he's not. And and so the whole message is going to kind of describe this whole, uh, this predicament that we find ourselves in, that what do we do when, when God doesn't, when he's delayed? And I'm going to suggest that we don't take things into our own hands because it works out better if we wait on God. Here's the message. Praise the Lord. Let's go home. (laughs) But here's what I want you to do. Turn to Exodus chapter 32, and I want to read just the first... uh, Let me read the first four verses in Exodus 32. And uh, again, the people of Israel, they're wandering in the wilderness. God is leading them. When I say they're wandering, understand that God is leading them. He's got a plan. But from their perspective, they're just wandering around in the wilderness. They, you know, that's kind of where they're at. So uh, Exodus 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. Notice how they throw uh, Moses under the bus so quickly. As for this fellow Moses who, was brought, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, No, that's not what I'm going to do. No, you're not going to make me do that. Don't twist my arm. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your, wi- that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron and he took what they handed to him and made it into an idol cast, uh, 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 an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, "These are the gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt." <laughs> what? Moses? <laughs> Moses is gone for for how long? And Aaron, is, he doesn't even put up an argument. It's like, yeah, okay, I'm I'm with you guys on this thing. And he'll try to explain it away, but it's very interesting. So, so there's three things in your notes. The first one is this. This is number one. When God is delayed, don't try to help God out. Don't try to help God out. 
Um, the people, the minute that Moses was gone and God seemed to be delayed, they began to panic. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But what's with Aaron? He is so quick to agree to the demands and he calls them to gather all of the gold. Now, one of the things we didn't talk about yet in this series is when they left Egypt, they were given cattle, they were given gold, they were given plunder, basically, to take with them. So they had gold in that. And and here's the first principle, and this is absolutely true, and you know it's true in your own life, that you are absolutely willing to give your gold and silver to the things that drive your heart. You know, you'll say, well, pastor, we don't have money for this, and we don't have money for that, but I have money for that. And you go, wait a minute, this is more important than that. And you go, but I really love this. And so the people had no, there's no argument. He just says, bring your gold to me. And they're like all over it, right? Now Aaron's going to offer a feeble excuse to Moses. Uh, What Aaron didn't know was that God was ready to kill him. God was ready to kill him. In fact, if you read Deuteronomy, write this verse down, Deuteronomy 9 verse 20. Uh, It says this, and this is Moses speaking. The Lord was angry enough with Aaron to destroy him, but at the time I, that's Moses speaking, prayed for Aaron too. So Moses is being an intercessor for his brother. Um, Now the question is, what are they doing here as they create this golden calf? Uh, Are they violating the first commandment? What was the first commandment? We talked about it last weekend. You shall, you shall have no other gods before me, right? Now, that's probably not the command they're violating. They're really probably violating the second command. Let me explain what I'm talking about. What they're doing is, they're turning this, uh, the, they're creating this golden calf image. Uh, they weren't worshiping another god. They were making an idol or a portal to get to Yahweh. Now, think about this for a minute. What is going on here? So, they had to have a way to communicate with Yahweh. Up to this point, how do they communicate with the Lord? Through Moses. So, where's Moses? He's not there. So, what are they going to do? We have to find somebody. Aaron isn't certainly not doing anything here. And, and so, they say, well, let's create a portal. Let's create something, a go-between, a mediator between us and God. So, they create this golden calf. Now, where did they get the idea of a golden calf? Very simply, that's what they learned when they grew up in Egypt. This was a very common uh, idol to worship. The golden calf was a known image to these people from their time in Egypt. So they were mixing their new belief, their belief in Yahweh, with their old belief. They were taking a calf and saying, we're not worshiping the calf, we're worshiping Yahweh through the calf. So they would bow down to the calf, but ultimately, in their minds, they were bowing down to God. But they may not be violating the first command, you shall have no other gods, but they're certainly violating the second command, which says no image, no, make no images of Yahweh, right? So they're absolutely violating that. Now, if we're honest, we don't have golden calves sitting on our shelves at home. At least I hope we don't. Uh, but we are tempted to kind of 
we, we kind of do this. We say, well, I, I, I know God is this, but I kind of would rather Him be like this, or I think of Him to be like this. In other words, what we do is we idolize God. We don't make an idol of Him, but we idolize Him. Now, what happens when you idolize somebody? When you idolize somebody in the entertainment industry, or the, uh, an athlete, or some other famous person, what, what do you do when you idolize them? You don't know them. You've never met them. You, you, they wouldn't know you face to face. But you have an idea about them. You may like them and you may say, well, I think they're probably a very nice person. So you begin to idolize them because of their accomplishments or because of movies they've been in or TV shows they're on or just their fame. And you, you begin to idolize them and all of a sudden you, you see something about them and you go, oh, I didn't think that was them. You have this perception about them, right? But it's an incorrect perception about them. And so what the, what the idols do when you idolize God is you, you pervert who He is, who He really is. See, we want God, for instance, this is going on right now in our midst, we want God to teach our minds, uh, but we're not really interested in Him in transforming our hearts. So we gather together in a place like this to hear the Word taught, and we say, I want my mind to be stimulated. I want something new, something fresh, something I haven't heard before, but I'm not really interested in God speaking to my heart today and really dealing with something that's going on below the surface. So our Bible study or listening to God's Word being taught becomes merely an academic exercise instead of it being heart surgery. When you walk into the doors of a place where you're worshiping together, whether it's here at Roshek or whether in your own home, you're watching online, and you say, God, I want you to speak to my heart today. I don't just want to learn something new mentally. Or let's talk about this. We want, we want God to give us a lift as we worship him on the weekends, but we don't want him to govern our words and actions the rest of the week. We're different people on the weekend than we are during the week. We want him to change others. We say, oh, this would be a good message for this person to listen to. We know that you need to listen to that. You need to listen to this. But we, don't, we want God to change others, but we don't want God to change us. After all, we're not that bad. We want his love without his holiness. We want his mercy without his justice. We find an attribute or characteristic of God that we don't particularly like, so we soften God. We, we add our own perspective. Or, our, or Let me give you an example. We love the idea that God is love. And we want God to be all-inclusive. We, can't get our, we don't want to wrap our brains around that, that heaven is a place for certain people. We, we believe that there must be millions of ways to get to, to heaven. That there's a multiple paths to heaven. So we create a God who allows everyone in heaven, no matter what they believe, no matter what path they choose, because we choose to believe that God is a loving God and we want to downplay His holiness and His justice. So, that's actually the first step. Don't try to help God out. Don't idolize God. Don't make God into your own image. Secondly, don't assume that God, God's delay means abandonment. 
Don't, don't assume that just because God has delayed something in your life that you've been asking or praying for, that God has abandoned you. He has left you. Now, the people are quickly convinced that Aaron, they quickly convince Aaron to make a golden calf. They seem to be panicking. And, 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 and the question is, should we really blame them? I, I think we're easy to do that, but let's just, let's just step back and see that if you were them, you might have done the same thing. Jump down to Exodus 24, verse 15. Here's what it says. Read this. Remember now that the only one they have between God and them is Moses. This is the only one they've ever known. When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and the seventh day the Lord called Moses from within the cloud to the Israelites the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. And notice what it says in verse 18. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. It's been gone a long time. I mean, 40 days and 40 nights have been gone. Now, let me ask you a question. If your friend walked into a fire, how long do you think he'd last? Because what does it say about Moses? He walked up on the mountain and what did it look like? A burning fire. They see Moses walking up onto the mountain into a burning fire. How long do you think your friend would last? Ten minutes? Five minutes? Not 40 nights and 40 days. They, they really thought that Moses was toast. Well, poor choice. Okay. <laughs> so we may understand why they panic and why they said, well, we have to find another way to get to God. So they, they decided that if they're going to connect with Yahweh, they, they, let's go back to the old school. Let's, let's create a, an idol, um, the golden calf. It seemed like a good plan. After all, all the nations are doing it, aren't they? You can almost hear your parents saying to you, I don't care what all the other nations are doing it. If, there, if every nation in the world builds a golden calf, does that mean you should build a golden calf? Well, the answer is no, no. But you can hear your parents saying that, right? But see, here's the point. Waiting on God's a hard thing to do. Especially when he remains silent for a long time. But taking things in your own hands generally doesn't work out well. And many of you can testify to that because you've tried it and it didn't work. You've been waiting for that job. You've been praying for it over and over and over. You've been waiting for that one person. You say, God, just bring that one person in my life because I'm praying that I won't be single. And yet, here you are. You're still single. And you're about ready to take things in your own hands. You're in a difficult place that you don't want to be in right now. You've made a, some poor choices. And now you're kind of in a difficult place and you just want to get out of that place. Can I just say this? Sometimes God allows you to go through those times. Even when the ch you've made bad choices and you put yourself there. God allows you to go through those difficult times because this is a key time in your life. God wants to do something significant in your life. And you can either allow that to happen or you can say, I just want to get out of here and get on with my life. And you will miss out on what God wants to do. A deep thing that He wants to do in your life.
It may be that you've been waiting for a healing that has yet to come. See, sometimes when you face, you're faced with the delay of God, you're tempted to turn back. You know, some people, I've talked to people who say, I prayed for God's healing, maybe for me, maybe for a friend, and God didn't heal them. And so I'm done with God. I, I've waited long enough. I've walked with Him long enough. I'm going to go another way. I am, I am disappointed. I am angry with God because He didn't answer a sincere prayer that I offered in desperation. I was, he was my last choice. He was my last chance and He failed me and I've given up on God. Some people that I've met have come to a place where there's just really no point in following God. But my question is this when you give up on God, who's left? Who's left? You know, it reminds me of a time where Jesus was teaching very hard things. And he had, he said he had a lot of, it says it has a lot of disciples following him. And he began to, he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't follow me. And people didn't understand what he was saying. And they said, whoa. And they began to walk away. He began to leave him. And he he looked at his his 12 disciples and he said, will you walk away too? Will you walk away too? And this is what he says. This is John chapter 6. You do not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And Simon Peter answered him. You know, sometimes Peter said some really dumb things and did some really dumb things. And then there's other times where he just absolutely cracks it out of the park. This is one of those times. And Peter says this. Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. What Peter is saying is so incredibly important for us to hear. He's saying, you are the only way. You are the plan. There is no plan B. You are plan A. And there is no... I can, we can walk away, but what are we walking away to? There is no plan B. Where are we going to turn to? Here's the third point. Don't forget, you still need a mediator. <laughs> So, so this is the kind of the interesting, theological, uh, mysterious part of the passage that we want to look at. This is verse 9 of chapter 32. And it says, let me just read it to you. I'll make a few comments and we'll talk about it. Uh, so the point is, don't forget you still need a mediator. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. So this idea of stiff-necked goes back to an animal that you're trying to pull and drag and, and get it to, you know, to yield to your will. And they have the stiff neck. They don't want to go in the direction that you want to lead them, right? So the Lord says to Moses, these people, they're a stiff-necked people. We can't lead them anywhere. And now, leave me alone. Underline that phrase, leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. And then I will make you into a good nation, a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? 
Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, or Jacob, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And I will give your descendants all this land, I promise them. And it will be their inheritance forever. And then it says, then the Lord relented. Mark that under London. The Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So the question is, what does it mean when it says the Lord relented? What does it mean for God? Some translations might be say repented. I think relented is a better way to put it. Are we to believe, if we read through this, if you just generally read through this passage, it seems as though God is losing it. And Moses, thank goodness that Moses is there to talk God down. See, if we're to take this passage at face value, we need to conclude that, God, that God's reasoning is flawed and that his decisions are to destroy his people are impulsive. If it were not for the ability of Moses to talk God down, the Hebrew people would be no more. Fortunately for God, he was helped by a superior guidance counselor. Thank goodness for Moses. And Moses says, God, you can't destroy your people. You made promises. You're going to look foolish to all the nations. You can't do this. What's going on here? Are we to believe that the deity, the one who created the universe, the heavens and the earth, created man in his own image, created the, 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 the sea and the sky and the mountains and the hills and the vegetation and created man in his image and, and made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that this God all of a sudden has lost it and, he, and, and a human being, Moses, who has already shown us he's very flawed, he's been very difficult he's got issues going on i mean he he can fly off the handle and kill somebody and and he, he is he's kind of complained sometimes and he's he is a great leader but sometimes he's not such a great leader but he, he has his moment and he he finally talks some sense into god is that what we're supposed to believe here no i don't believe that's what's going on I believe that God is shaping Moses into a mediator. I believe that what God is doing here is he's teaching Moses what it means to mediate and to be a go-between between his people and God. First Samuel, you can write this verse down. There's many more, but let me just give you one. First Samuel chapter 15, verse 29 says this, Speaking of God, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He is not like, he is not a man that he should change his mind. In other words, God doesn't come to a place where he gets, oh, wait a minute, I just painted myself in a corner. I've just made a mistake. I just didn't see this coming. This has caught me totally off guard. It doesn't happen with God. See, if you study Exodus 32 a little more carefully, you discover that God's will is settled here as it is anywhere else in Scripture. In Exodus 32, God already knows what He's going to do. This is, God isn't, there's a couple of, and I asked you to underline a key phrase as I said, underline, leave me alone. Now, you might take that at face value and say, this is just a child saying, I don't want to talk, leave me alone. I'm going to do it. And that's not what's going on here. 
What God is doing here is he's saying to Moses, I am going to destroy the nation of Israel and I am going to start over and Moses, you are going to be the place where I begin again. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. What do you think? And when God says to Moses, leave me alone, what he's saying is, how do you feel about that? You're going to let me go and do this? Are you okay with that? You're going to let me go ahead and, and do what I, I'm saying that I could do? Is he going to allow... You know, God, what God is doing, he's testing Moses to see if, if, God, if, if he would allow Mo, God to destroy the people. God will not proceed and punish Israel unless the prophet Moses allows him to do it. He offers to destroy uh, Israel and to start over. And the question is, the real question of the text is not what's happening with God, but what's happening with Moses. Now the irony, irony is, is amazing here. Although the people have moved past Moses like lightning quick. We don't remember this Moses guy. Let's find someone else. Although the people have disowned Moses. He was the only one who could save. And God says, what, are you, what do you want to do, Moses? Now, Moses doesn't know that they've thrown him under the bus. He could have predicted it, but he doesn't know that. But God himself leaves the door open for Moses to intercede. He allows himself to be persuaded. And that's what mediators do. They go before God. And they make intercession. So the question, and this is one of the questions you're going to find, and you can spend all, you can uh, take a lot of time and spend a lot of time on it. One of the questions in the guide this weekend, the sermon guide, is um, if God is sovereign, if God already has a plan, why pray? And, and I, I, I like, uh, let me read you what I think is a great answer to this. And uh, then I'll give you a couple of a- examples. In the ultimate sense, this is Tim Keller, and he says this. In the ultimate sense, God is in control of everything that occurs. Our prayer, prayers could not possibly wrest control of any part of the universe away from God. However... It is part of God's goodness that he allows the world to be susceptible to our prayers. How does he do this? How he, how he does this, how he maintains control of the universe, and yet makes human prayer and action responsible within history, is one of the most practical mysteries of the Bible. So what Keller is essentially saying is this. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God knows what is going to happen. Yes, God has a plan. So that brings us to a place, humanly speaking, where we say, well, then prayer doesn't matter. Prayer isn't important. And what Keller says is, oh, yes, it does. It does make a difference. And by the way, let me give you a few just quick reasons. I just wrote a few down because this will get you started if you get into your life group this weekend. Uh, Some of the answers. Why should we pray if God is sovereign? Because Jesus said, remember the Lord's prayer, he says, when you pray, 
pray like this. So Jesus tells us to pray, right? And he tells us how to pray, essentially. The Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Uh, the Bible tells us that Jesus prayed. If Jesus prayed, it seems to me that we should too. The Bible tells us to ask, to seek, and to knock. So the, the answer is, why should you pray? Because we're told to pray. And if we want to be obedient to God, we pray. But also, what is going on here? The prayer really is or the intercession. What's going on here between God and Moses here? Well, it's really conforming or changing Moses and his heart. God is working on Moses. So God had a plan, and he's asking Moses if he would intercede for the Hebrew people. Now notice that God, uh, given a choice between serving himself and serving his, serving his people, he put others first. And by the way, this is one of the greatest signs, and this is one of the great moments in the life of Moses where he shows that he is a man of God and here it is right here because in the midst uh, in the, the the mark of a true man of God is that he chooses God's greater glory over his own personal good because God says to him Moses I'll wipe these people out and I'll start over with you and Moses said no you would not be glorified by that. The nations would make fun of you. You wouldn't be the God of gods. Your name must be held high. The people need to be punished, but they cannot not be destroyed. And, and so Moses basically says, it's not about me, it's about you. And that's what a man or a woman of God always chooses. God always wins. We always lose when it comes to God. We always subserve to God. And that's what Moses is doing here. Now, let me give you an illustration. So, it may be that as you're thinking about this interaction between God and Moses, is still a little fuzzy. Let me give you a family illustration that kind of happens in most families. It happened in ours a number of times. So, let's just say your kids leave their toys strewn all over the house. It's a mess. And you've kind of talked to them and you say, you've, you've asked them to pick it up and you've gotten nowhere. And you say, okay, hey kids, um, don't worry about picking up your toys. Um, I'll take care of it. I just need to go get the garbage can and I will start picking up your toys. Okay? Now, what would you hope that your kid's response would be to that? No, Mom. No, Dad. We'll pick them up. We're picking them up. See, we're picking them up. We're taking care of them. We're picking up. We're saving them. Now, let me ask you a question. As a parent, were you really going to throw them out? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe don't answer that. <laughs> what are you really doing there? You want them to take ownership. You want them to take care of them. You want them to pick them up. You want them to make intercession for their toys. Save their toys, right? So you say, well, this is what I'm going to do, guys. I'm, going to get, I'm getting the barrel. No, we'll take them. I think that's what's going on here. In a similar way, God used the threat of judgment to rouse Moses to active intercession for his people. Now, Moses reflected on this later on in Deuteronomy chapter 9 and verse 25. This is what he says. 
Moses says this, I lay prostrate before the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord had said he would destroy you and I lay prostrate on the ground for you. 40 days and 40 nights. Also we see from Psalm 106 that God's plan was to show mercy all along. As you read Psalm 106, it's kind of a, it chronicles the people of Israel as they leave Egypt and how they rebel against God and how God kind of is put up with a lot. He's, you know, he's put up with this. He's put up with this. He's put up with, this is just one more of those. And he says, it says this in Psalm 106, 21. They forgot the God who saved them, who had done great things in Egypt, miracles in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. So he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to keep his wrath from destroying them. And essentially, if you read through the psalm, it's pretty clear that what's going on is God has a plan. He has a plan. Moses was not changing God's plan. He was carrying them out. Notice also that Moses, in an intercession, he doesn't try to negotiate with God that the people aren't really that bad. I mean, they jump right past that they deserve it, right? It's like, you know, it's like he began with the assumption that the people are guilty. They were, there's no one righteous, no, not one. All were guilty, including Aaron. Every one of them. Every stinking one of them. So Moses was not on the mountain to intercede for the innocent, but for the guilty. Moses was asking God to forgive the guilty, to save the ungodly. In a similar way, today, God is up on his holy mountain. We are here on earth. And like the Israelites, we are floundering in sin and rebellion against God. Our idolatry, just like there, leads to immorality. We are guilty as sin on a bun. We need Moses to come down and make intercession for us. Someone who can turn God's wrath away. And that's what God did 2,000 years ago. He said to his son Jesus, go down because your people, the ones... Notice it interesting. When you see, when you see God talking to Moses, he says, the people, your people, the ones you brought out of Egypt, the ones that you led into the wilderness, he's, he, Moses, he's turning them over to... And he notice, and, and so God the Father says to Jesus the Son, go down... Because your people, the ones I gave to you from all eternity, have become corrupt so that there is none righteous, no, not one. They are all living in sin. They have all turned away from me to worship other gods. And unless you intercede for them, they will surely be destroyed by my wrath. That's exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He came down to, from heaven to earth to serve as a Savior, a mediator. He rose and ascended in, unto heaven as our mediator. But he didn't just come and become the go-between. He took the punishment that we deserved. It was the punishment, the sin, the rebellion, the, the, the ungodly life that, that every one of us has lived was strapped to Jesus on the cross when he gave his life. So he became a savior. 
He came down to save us from our sins. He took the punishment we deserve. He rose and ascended into heaven as our mediator. And today he is standing before the throne of grace, making intercession or mediating for us. He is the final Moses. This is the way Hebrews 7, chapter 7, verse 23 puts it. Now there... There have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. And then it says this, Therefore He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. The question is, this weekend, who do you have in heaven who is interceding for you. You know, one day we will stand before God, but the question is, who is standing before God for you today? Moses stood before the people on the mountain before God, you know, way back then. And now the question is today, do you have, do you know Jesus as Savior? Is He your Savior? Or are you trying to save yourself? Are you trying to be good enough, live a good enough life? Or have you come to a place and said, I am a sinner, I am lost, and unless Jesus saves me, I'm dead. The Bible says whoever calls on the name of the Lord not only finds forgiveness and salvation, but we gain a mediator, a savior, an intercessor, somebody who stands before at the right side of the throne before God for us. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If not, I'd love to talk with you after the service. But right now, I want to just pray with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, uh, the example of Moses today. Thank you for the way that he interceded for his people. And thank you for Jesus, who ultimately is the final mediator and final one who intercedes for us before the throne on a daily basis. Right now, Jesus is standing, uh, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. We're so grateful for that. We're so thankful for that. I pray, Father, that from this message that we would take something, that the Spirit of God would speak to some area of our life that is not right with you, and that we would take the steps of repentance and of, of, of asking for forgiveness and finding a new, new uh, uh, step of relationship with you today. Father, thank you for the lessons that your Word teaches each and every one of us. May your Holy Spirit Help us to capture them, and may they make a difference in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.